Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. Indeed we do. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. I write for Slash Film. Uh, I'm recording in my uh, sound-filled apartment. Uh, there's there's a lot of ambient noise. So maybe if you hear like some strange, eerie, eraserhead-like mechanical humming, that's probably coming from my end. Yeah, if you can guess every noise coming from Whitney's apartment, he'll send you a prize. I'll send you a noise in the mail. He'll <laughs> <laughs> send you a picture of a toaster. Um, uh, this is our letters podcast. We're going to answer yeah. your letters. That's, that's, that's what right. we do on this particular podcast. <laughs> that's what we do. You send us an email or you send us a physical letter and uh, we answer it and we answer your questions and we talk about whatever we want us to talk about. We respond to your criticisms. Uh, we're, we're basically opening the floor. So uh, here's how it works. You can email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Whitney, if they would prefer to write us the old fashioned way, what is our P.O. box? Yeah, if you want to send us an actual physical letter, you can send it to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Whee! And, uh, yeah, let's just uh, jump right in, shall we? Whitney, what is, right. our, uh, what is our first email? Our first email comes from Lily. Hello, Lily. Hi, it Lily. It says, uh, hey, Bibbs hey, Bibs and, oh gosh, it's difficult to pronounce, Rockmeister McCool. Uh, every spelling of Rockmeister McCool is correct, so this is also correct. Yeah. Um, uh, Whitney, Whitney hours, is sometimes called Rockmeister McCool on this podcast, by uh, the way. It, it is encouraged. If I'm, if I'm in a, a bit of a jaunty mood, I suppose. Hmm. Uh, it says, hey, Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool, after hours of scrolling through various streaming services... I've begun to realize that the term cult film is used so broadly that the word no longer has any meaning. HBO, for instance, considers The Wizard of Oz, literally the most watched movie of all time, a cult <laughs> classic. Um, oh maybe if they replaced the soundtrack with Dark Side of the Moon, maybe that could be then a cult film. That's a cult film. Yeah. That's a cult film, yeah. Uh, that being said, uh, what are some of your movies that you guys would ac- actually consider cult classics? As in, you learned of their existence from a particular subculture. For instance, although I would by no means consider it an underground film, I consider I learned of Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, from hearing it quoted by drag performers every five minutes. Oh, there you go. Also, I'm going to have a change in my financial situation in the coming months, and I'm very excited to finally be able to subscribe to your Patreon. Oh, I wanted to for you. years, and I'm glad I'm going to be able to get the chance to sign to Lily. Well, thank you. We, thank you. we appreciate nice. the, just even the thought. That you would even think of of subscribing to our <laughs> Patreon is very sweet. That means a um, lot to us, and we hope you enjoy the, the many podcasts you'll get there. Um, but yeah, cult, the, you raise a, a good point. The, the term cult film is mm-hmm. a little nebulous because what is a cult to some people might be very mainstream to other people. It all depends on what your sphere is. Uh, but for me, it's my understanding that a cult film would be a movie that wasn't popular when it came out. It might have been a mainstream release. Uh It might not. It might have been very obscure, very indie, but it might have been a mainstream release that didn't do very well. But over time, it accumulated a passionate fan base. Not just people who kind of like it, but people who just really dig it and quote it, and they make it like part of their lives and part of their identity. They share it with people they care about. They want to make sure people know about this movie that kind of fell through the cracks. Sometimes yeah. a movie can be a cult movie and then become so popular as a cult movie 
it no longer feels like a cult movie. Yeah. It can actually just become mainstream. Um, and this has happened before. I'm trying to think of a, of a good example. Yeah, well, of of, like the, the mainstreaming of uh, like Rocky Horror, for instance, the, the ultimate go. cult movie. Um, it, if you go see it live and you're surrounded by like the rowdy live performances and you see the movie on the screen, that's still a cult experience. You watch it at home, everybody's seen it now. It's, it's hardly, hardly yeah. edgy anymore. I feel like, uh, William, your definition of a cult film might be a little too broad. I, I okay. seem to think that cult movies do at least indicate a certain kind of subject matter. Okay. Uh, and this is coming in entirely from what I learned from video stores, uh, because I'm that old. Um, video stores back in the day, you know, they'd have uh, their films typically arranged by genre. Uh, and they were very broad, you know, comedy genres. Drama was the one that always got me. It's like, isn't every story a drama? But yeah, yeah. The, anything that wasn't meant to be funny or full of action was was sort of sandwiched into the genre. And then you're supposed the to corner, just take it seriously, boom, genre, uh, drama. Yeah. yeah. But then you, you run into something like, where does James L. Brooks' broadcast news fall? Is that a comedy film or is that a drama film? It's kind uh, of both, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we've talked about yeah, this a lot. And movies don't exist in just one genre. That's really rare. Yeah, yeah. That you would find uh, a movie that feels like it's only one genre. But when you're stocking a video store, you only you you can only choose one section, you see. So exactly. uh, it, it became vitally important to sort of section things off by one broad genre and we're still seeing uh the effects of that today when you go on streaming services like this is the horror section this is the sci-fi section um and yeah way over in the corner a bunch of video boxes with a lot of dust on them uh <laughs> was the cult section and i'd go over there and i'd see things like the the films of john waters a lot of stuff with divine in them uh i'm thinking particularly the 2020 video in santa monica california which was my go-to video store when i was a kid mm. uh that's where I first learned about stuff like Eraserhead or the Mondo movies. Uh, they typically have, I guess for lack of a better term, some kind of extreme subject matter, something that is not broadly appealing, something that actually has a very particular niche appeal, hence the term cult. It, you have to sort of be in the know. You have to be in on the joke in order to appreciate a movie like that. You have to be part of the cult. Uh, so I, while the term cult could ap apply to anything, uh, I, I, I think it applies to something very particular. Um, I will say this. To, I will say yeah. this about the difference between my definition and yours uh -huh. is that my definition may potentially apply more broadly. I think what you're talking about tends to fall into it more often because if a movie has mainstream appeal, if it is just sort of entertaining in a mainstream way. Uh huh. It's probably going to be generically successful anyway. Not necessarily. Success not necessarily. is not guaranteed on anything. No, I'm not. I'm not talking about that. But what I'm talking about that it's not. Okay, let me put it this way: it's probably less likely to gain a passionate fan base. I don't think we're ever likely to see, for example, a passionate fan base that's going to emerge from something like, oh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of like some American assassin. With, like, Michael Keaton and Taylor <laughs> Kitsch. I don't think that's ever going to have a passionate fan base. I think it's just going to be something where, like, people who read the book, like, it's okay. Hmm. But, like, well, but, uh, but in order to about... get a passionate fan base, it's probably got to have something 
to be passionate about, which means it is yeah. outside the norm. Or maybe it is uh, well, a term I dislike, but I think we all know what I mean. So bad, it's good. There's levels of naivete or lack of confidence yeah, yeah. that are somehow charming. Yeah. Um, well, but if you're so, yeah. but if you're taking it by those standards, then something that is just broadly appealing and massively, massively successful has like a niche appeal. What about something like Star Wars? You know, uh, everybody, uh, again, everybody's again, seen it. My, everybody loves it. It's broadly appealing. My definition, and it has a passionate following. My definition was specifically uh-huh. that it was a film that was not initially successful. Oh, okay. because if it's initially successful, then it's just popular. Yeah. Star Wars is not a cult film. It has a cult-like following, but it's not a cult film because it is generally very popular and was from the very beginning. It's not like it did okay and found its audience on home video. Right. All right? So I don't think Star Wars applies even in my definition. I think, you know, my definition would apply to something like The Ice Pirates, which is Star Mm. Wars-like. It definitely has Star Wars-type appeal. It's got spaceships and action. But it also has a very strange sense of humor, a very strange kind of sexuality to it. The costume design is bizarre. The humor is bizarre. Uh, It's a wonderful watch, by the way. It's super weird. And if you love the Guardians of the Galaxy (laughs) movies and you've never seen The Ice Pirates, that would be an example of a cult film I would bring up. As yeah, one of my yeah. favorite um, cult movies, just because it's very strange. But even though it is very fun and people who like it really like it, it's not a mainstream cult film yet. It's still not one of the ones everyone talks about. So you still okay, feel well, kind of like you're part of a secret club. Also, mainstream cult film is an oxymoron. Uh, exactly. That's it, um, a mainstream for a cult movie. Like everyone has probably heard about the cult success of something like The Room or Troll uh, 2. That's as well, that's, mainstream as a cult can get because if you yeah, know well, of it, you, it's you, you didn't really go digging. Yeah, that's that's sort point. of the and that's the arc of a lot of these movies, especially uh, a lot of the, uh, cult movies. Kind of have something of a life cycle. I saw a, a documentary film last year uh, called I think it was called You Don't Know Me N O M I, and it was about oh, yeah, yeah. and it it was about the cult that uh, just sort of the life cycle of Showgirls, how yeah. it was released as this big mainstream uh, studio film. It tanked the, miserably. The, just nobody's went yeah. to go see it. It was got terrible reviews because it's a terrible movie. Sounds and then, good. and then uh, some people started coming around to enjoy just how terrible it was and how weird the dialogue was and how strangely the sexuality was wielded. And it became appreciated uh, sort of as an object lesson. And that's when it became sort of a cult movie. But then this. Additional cycles started to come around where people started to point to showgirls as some kind of like backdoor high drama and that the melodrama on display in something like showgirls was actually a very earnest, uh, straight up entertainment. It and didn't just have cult appeal. People thought it was genuinely good. Some people started to say it was genuinely good or that it was like an important movie in some way. And that, I, I kind of object to that because I think... I love Showgirls. I've seen it a bunch of times. I also think it's a piece of shit. Uh, it, it's it, its terribleness is what makes it so fascinating to watch. Uh, yeah, but the question is now: Is it so? But yeah, but then well yeah, liked it, as a cult film, is it still a cult film? Well, yeah. Eventually, it starts playing like the midnight movie circuit. It starts getting played in like repertory houses on a much more regular basis. And after a while, it kind of gets overexposed. And its yeah. appeal as a cult object falls away. And right now, I don't think you could program Showgirls at a midnight movie and still have people show up. I think it's done. 
Uh, I think same thing would show with, up, but it wouldn't put, you wouldn't pack the house. Exactly. Uh, same thing with the room. People aren't really yeah. interested in the room anymore. We had the book. You know, Greg Sestero wrote that book about the making of the room. Uh, we had a biopic about the making of the room made by a Hollywood studio. It's like the, the mystery is gone. The, yeah. the weirdness of the film, it's not so weird anymore. It's just sort of generally accepted. So uh, I, will, I will say this, though. While Showgirls may or may not, depending on your definition, mm-hmm. still qualify as a cult film, you know what is a cult film? Hmm. Showgirls 2, Pennies from Heaven. Showgirls 2, Pennies from Heaven is most assuredly a cult film. I have, I still have that signed poster uh, on my wall. It's right next to me. Um, if you've never seen it, oh <laughs> my god. Imagine, imagine if David Lynch did a, a Showgirls like a John, sequel. Like, uh, it's like, that's, it's like D- David Lynch via John Waters. Uh, Rena Riffle, uh, who played the character of Penny in Showgirls, uh, a.k.a. Hope, uh... She uh, decided to make a sequel about her character. So it's called Showgirls 2, colon, Pennies, P-E-N-N-Y, apostrophe S, Pennies from Heaven. Mm-hmm. And it's about her merry misadventures trying to become famous and the strange mentors and people she met along the way. And they repeat a lot of lines of dialogue shot on home video. Uh, a lot a few, of really f- weird, wild dialogue. It's two and a half hours long. I know, uh, but it flies by, though. It's got a few cast members, some of the original, but mostly the smaller actors. Uh, yeah. People you'd recognize if you've seen it multiple times. Um, it is absolutely fascinating, that film. Yeah, yeah. And you have to see it if you have if you think, oh, I've seen Showgirls, I know cult movies. See Showgirls too, and get back to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Whitney, so, uh, I, I on think, that note... Yeah, uh-huh. sorry. No, you go first. No, just, I, I think... When it comes to, like, a true cult movie, you kind of have to affect a little bit of a Cenobite attitude. You have to be an explorer <laughs> of the outer reaches of the of ex- the human experience. Like, right. you have to really seek for something that is incredibly bizarre or off-putting. Mm. Something that is truly coming from a strange mind. I think yeah. the only way to really discover a proper cult movie these days is... You, you really have to find it yourself. You have to yeah. delve. You have to take uh, and, a chance and, on some weird random thing on Tubi from like yeah, 1975 and, that no one's heard about and, and, and see then you, if it's worth sharing with anybody. And that's and that's step one. Once you've done that for like the better part of a year, then you're ready for step two. That's when you start delving into like the outsider stuff. Um, it, it's, it's not an easy path, the path of the cult film. Uh, <laughs> it, it is yeah. it is really rewarding though, and I think when mm. you become like a film lover and like you start really dedicating a lot of your time to it, you you watch a lot of the mainstream films. You go through like the AFI top 100, which we still use as like a measure, even though it hasn't been updated in like 20 years. Like we really it's, gotta it's just, update that thing. It's just a on. general list of recommendations. That's but all that's you can the really deal. See it's, it it's a as, general yeah. list of American history. Of, of film recommendations but then what do you do when you go past that well you go through mm. international film that's good but after a while you, you start needing more and weirder things after you've seen all the mainstream stuff in order to really fascinate you in order to get that sense of discovery back yeah. um so going on those journeys of discovery are the greatest things and to have someone introduce you to something they have discovered is really really fun especially if it's something that hasn't become you know iconic yet and people yeah. don't well, know that it's a cult film but to discover it yourself 
Well, that's that's why that's you and I better. get yeah. really rhapsodic when when we come across one of those movies, one of these really oddball films that's just exciting to watch. Yeah. We were all over Psycho Gorman when that movie yeah, came out, and uh, Psycho Gorman is, and I feel like that one still hasn't caught on yet. Like there, you can buy T-shirts. The people who love it love uh, it. Yeah, uh, but give it some one, time. Give it some time, Psycho yeah, Gorman. One that did sort of catch on that you can find like a, on a, on the midnight circuit is something like Mandy. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, tr- truly odd, odd and off-putting movies that I think a small, passionate audience uh, really follows. Uh, Bruce Campbell described a cult movie very simply. He said a hit movie is when a, a million people see a movie ten times, and a cult movie is when ten people see a movie a million times. Yeah. Uh, th- to him, that's the only difference. A small, passionate audience is the only thing that makes a cult movie. And sometimes, uh, these, sometimes these are all broad definitions, though. You can probably yeah. find other people whose definitions don't even match ours. But basically, we're talking about films that have either lapsed into obscurity just because nobody knows they exist, or they lapsed mm-hmm. into obscurity because everyone said they were bad, but maybe they're worth watching. Um, when it comes to more like cult films, recommend we've already recommended a few. Uh, mm-hmm. If you can track down this movie, is fascinating. Uh, did you do you know that the very first film ever made entirely in American Sign Language? Is an adaptation of Dracula called Defula? Oh, I that was in my brain somewhere, but yeah, I'd forgotten yeah. that. It is hypnotic. It is a it is a genuinely very interesting film, mm-hmm. uh, but it's so obscure and so hard to find. I think uh, I, I don't think it's readily available in a lot of places, but uh, it it has to be a cult kind of film, kind of by definition, just because it's harder to, to track down. It's not. You know, doesn't yeah, come up yeah. very often. You know, but it's it's great, and if you get a chance to see it, I think it'll be like, ooh, how fascinating! Okay, yeah. So anyway, that's, uh, that's another example right there. Another letter. Yeah, let's do another letter. All right, uh, here's a letter from Jacob. Hello, Jacob. Uh, it says, "Hey, Bibbs and Whitney." Uh, oh, and this is a new one. This one just came in today. Um, okay. I'm writing this question right before seeing Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three, uh, which, as of this recording, will open. Today, uh, today's its opening day. Um, one of the things I'm most fascinated by as a film fan is going through and finding what films uh, the film's directors have said inspire them. For example, Wes Anderson has talked about how much the films of the French New Wave inspired the French Dispatch, while Taika Waititi waxed rhapsodic about Flash Gordon when making Thor Ragnarok. Uh, my question is, with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 now out... What are some older films that may have led, uh, may have influenced James Gunn, as well as the first two Guardians films? What could I watch afterwards? Star Wars is, not, is an obvious answer, so I'll take the liberty of disqualifying those films from this discussion. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time to answer this question, and keep up the great work. Sincerely, Jacob. Uh, well, uh, I've you, already said it, the yeah, you, Ice Pirates. You mentioned the Ice Pirates. Um, I, I've I think... often said that the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy feels like if the Ice Pirates had a $100 million budget. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. basically it. it. They're very similar. It, it, Ice Pirates is a little raunchier. It's got some more sex jokes in it. Yeah, uh, but they're all very immature. Uh, well, that, that's that's my. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's my one complaint about Guardians is that it's not immature enough. Like uh, they're they're trying to make it a little. I, I sense a, a bit of a posier syndrome with something like Guardians of the Galaxy. Like mm. it, it's pretending like it's weird but it doesn't actually feel weird it actually feels really well, kind of safe i think that's uh, and, what and that's, happens that's though, the when issue you, i you, have with it I, I think that's i think that's all what you're trying to do though is when you were making a film like guardians of the galaxy which at the time the original guardians of the galaxy was probably the biggest risk marvel had made since they made the original iron man 
which is, you know, Iron Man was a relatively obscure character in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Will people be interested in seeing it? Will people want to see a Robert Downey Jr. movie at yeah. the time? Even that was considered kind of weird. Because John Favreau, who's made some well-received movies, does he have a blockbuster in him as a director? He hadn't no. yet. So when the Guardians came out, those were the most obscure characters Marvel had ever made a movie about. Mm-hmm. It was a raccoon in a tree, for crying out loud. Uh, and... I think they did a really smart thing in getting James Gunn, a filmmaker who had arisen through the ranks of trauma and a lot of indie comedy and uh, a lot of sort of bizarre like script punch ups. Like he punched, he worked on the scripts for the the live action Scooby-Doo movies and he did an uncredited polish on the remake of 13 ghosts. And they got a guy who was weird, but whose weirdness could be filtered into something that was, more unusual than we're used to in a Marvel movie, but mm-hmm. still a Marvel movie. And I think they, they modulated that pretty well. Um, and I think as time has gone on, they've given him a little bit more freedom to just kind of throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And I think in the new movie, we'll review it properly in the next critically acclaimed. Uh, there is some genuinely weird stuff in it. Uh, or at the very least, impressively non-mainstream stuff, like some really upsetting things in that movie i think yeah there's, there's like um, mu- mutants and monsters that don't look like yeah. the kinds you see they're in not, these kinds of movies they're not like fun they're like oh god that's really sad actually you know that kind of thing <laughs> um mm. so i don't know i think i think it works but I, I think if you want to understand uh james gunn i think you have to go back to trauma I think you have to go back yeah, and look yeah. at when he when james gunn was working his way up when James Gunn was was younger, um, the kinds of bizarre genre films that were getting made, you know, superhero movies of the 80s and 90s were very particular. If you want to see those bizarre uh, sort of potpourris of tone and character and good ideas but weird implementation, you would go to that lower budgeted stuff and you would see something like, and these are very R-rated movies. In fact, I think some of them are beyond R-rated. Oh, yes. uh, but you would go see films like The Toxic Avenger. Yeah, yeah. Which is very, very much where that is, I think, specific blend of this is a superhero element, but we're also not doing that at all. Yeah. Uh, it, this is funny, but it's also very tragic. And it actually it does have something to say, but it's saying it through the most exploitation cinema way possible so that it will go down smooth. So... I think Toxic Avenger yeah, well, is a great start. I, I find it a little baffling that James Gunn is now in charge of, like, Superman and stuff. Like, his new job, know, as, right? as of this recording, is is he's been put in charge of uh, movies and TV shows based on DC Comics. Uh, which like is all of them. All of them. Uh, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, that whole crowd. And yeah. you, you look back at his early films, and I was positive that he hated superheroes. Because he wrote a film called The Specials which is a low-budget independent film about superheroes on their day off. They're not doing any of the action mm-hmm. stuff. They're just sort of hanging it, around, and, and they're all having, it's like... It's really funny. It's really it's funny. It's incredibly funny. It's, it's very dialogue-forward, and uh, they all have conversations about how their relationships are falling apart, and they're having mm-hmm. existential crises about their status as superheroes, and one of the, the more popular ones might get, like, a, a sponsorship deal, so it's all very mercenary. Uh, and, th- and then he made a, a superhero film called Super which is 
one of the sadder movies I've seen. It's about a, a fellow who believes mm. his brain is touched by the finger of God, or maybe he's just gone completely insane and yeah. decides to become a superhero. But it also points out that when you go up to a bad guy and like do violence to them, it's really violent. Like, the weapon of the main character is just a wrench. He just smacks people on the head with wrenches, and they scream and bleed. And uh, yeah. just and all, anybody and who puts on a costume is really misguided and kind of mentally yeah. ill in that movie. Uh, yeah, superheroes are, are you, wicked in the, that universe. Yeah. And I, it's also one of the few films I've seen that actually acknowledge that part of it, not for everybody maybe, but part of the idea of putting on a costume, uh-huh. putting on a persona, is kink. Yeah, yeah, like the, it actually um, acknowledges that. The, like that, the, outside um, of Batman Returns, there aren't a lot of uh, superhero movies that are really comfortable admitting that the people who put on fetish outfits uh-huh. might have a fetish. Yeah, there's like a sexual element to it. One of yeah. the characters like is, really gets off on wearing the costumes. Um, so yeah, that he comes over and starts doing this like very safe, just downright sentimental movies, like the Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy movies seems so out of character for him. And then when he finally tries to go back and do something really gory, like the suicide squad, which has a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, pretty spectacular violence in it. It's very violent. Very violent. It, it, it still feels weirdly safe to me. Like that, even that one didn't feel strange enough. Yeah. Um, especially when you compare it to, yeah, like trauma going back to the early days of it. Yeah. Um, I think, trying to think, of, I think like, about... what was the, the good mm. cartoonishly violent, like movie that James Gunn would have watched and just been I think, completely I, th- I think one by. I think but here's the deal. I think here's the thing about James Gunn and and I mostly like his movies. I didn't I don't like all of them equally, but I mostly mm-hmm. like his movies. Um I think he's always trying to even when he's doing something like super weird and disgusting like Slither, I think he's always trying to fill his films with characters and ideas. And so I don't think you're going to find necessarily the biggest influences would be something that is just weird or just violent. I yeah. think you're going to find something that is broadly violent, but actually does have some meat on its bones. And so one of the things I was thinking that would probably be a good example would be spaghetti westerns. Hmm. Uh, yeah, the Sergio Leone stuff, Once Upon a Time in the West, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, those are great movies, but I'm thinking more of the like weirder, more outlandish, more acid-like uh, uh, westerns. Uh, anything starring Tomas Milian, as far as okay, I'm concerned, yeah. is probably a good bet. Uh, have you ever seen uh, the movie Django Unchained was based off of a long series of westerns about a vigilante-type hero named Django, made by a whole bunch of different filmmakers, played by a whole bunch of different people, took on a whole bunch of different uh, personae. Uh, the original Django, probably the best, but my favorite, is Django kill if you live yeah. shoot, uh, which is just a super surreal kind of a western horror action comedy hybrid. Um, I'm I love that movie a lot. Uh, I would really love Run Man Run, um, which stars Tomas Milian as like a low level thief, like just a just a street thief who uh, stumbles across a, a big conspiracy to steal a bunch of gold only he knows where the gold is and so he's running across the country and every single person he meets decides to like chase after him and it becomes kind of like it's a mad 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 world but with cowboys uh and it's not really funny it's just oh this poor guy (laughs) he's so screwed everywhere he goes um Hmm. like like his own girlfriend is chasing after him just because she knows that if he gets his hand on a lot of money he's just gonna ruin it so she's got to get to it first (laughs) 
it's That's hilarious. Good. But um, so yeah, I think a lot of the those better spaghetti westerns might be a good example. Uh, if you like James Gunn and want to go back to where it began, okay, yeah, yeah, that would be a good example. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We we're, we haven't reviewed um, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three. We will on our next uh, uh, episode. Otherwise, we'd get more into detail about what sort of what yeah, we don't know. Yeah, and there, there are a few examples specifically for that film, but I think to say it now before it came out would be a little rude. Yeah, yeah. A little rude. Um, our next letter uh, comes from Lexa. Hello, Lexa. We hear from Lexa from time to time. Hello, um, Lexa. Hello, guys. I've returned with another one of these. Mm. The, best, the best things that start with the letter H. Uh, That's right. Same rules as always. They can be of any genre of media. The only connection is that they have to start with the letter H and not appear on your main list. Uh, we have a podcast called, for anybody listening for the first time, we have a podcast called uh, The Iron List, where we poll listeners and then do a top ten list based on uh, options that we give them. Uh, sometimes films in a certain genre, a certain year. And we've been working our way through the alphabet. We just did the letter H. Uh, so and those are just a, movies that happen to begin with the same letter, so it's a very eclectic uh, yeah, uh, yeah. bunch. Uh, but every time we do that, Lexa writes in with their list of not just movies, but just any art that starts with that letter. Yeah, and it's always yeah. really fun, and they always like immediately remove anything that's on our list. Uh, so I love finding out what they're going to pick on it, because they have interesting tastes. So what do we got? Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, da, 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 da. So here are my favorite things, starting with the letter H. Hmm. Um, number 10. Higurashi When They Cry from 2002 to 2014 by the zero by zero 07th expansion. I don't even know what this is. Uh, this is okay. a foundational visual novel ah. and perfected the art of crafting the horror experience at the time uh, at the time nascent format uh, at, at the time when the, the format was nascent and in so doing made an experience so definitive that a number of tropes with the visual novel format are named after things from this game. I I don't know what visual novel refers to. Is that a video game? Uh, no, it's uh it's um it's a form of Japanese media. Um, okay. It's um. How, how would you describe it's, a it's visual like, novel? It's like, it's, yeah. it's it's like a video game, but it's more about an interactive story. Okay, so yeah, so it's it's constructed like a video game, but there's like less game in it. There's it's it's doesn't it's not like a bunch of fighting basically it's you 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 read what characters say you respond to those characters it's more like an interactive novel okay yeah uh, uh, number nine Happy Death Day to You directed by nice. from 2019 directed by Christopher Landon uh, personally I prefer the swings that the sequel takes while having some dark but absolutely hysterical sequences love this film highly recommend it yeah Happy Death Day to You takes the premise of the first one and turns it into this weird like. Into a science fiction thriller, it becomes really like heady, almost in a, a, a Twilight Zone sort of a way. Yeah, it's uh, basically like what if Groundhog Day had a sequel that explained why Groundhog Day was happening, but instead mm-hmm. of being terrible, which you imagine it would be, it's great and it has <laughs> ideas all of its own. And somehow this character who went on like in a huge personal journey in the first film, and you think they're all kind of set for life. No, there's so much more to learn, and we've actually come up with a new excuse to put them in that time loop. And that movie's great. I'm glad yeah, that movie. Yeah. I'm glad the movie has an audience. I really am because the first film was a hit. The second film wasn't, and I think we we're all a little surprised. Yeah, that yeah. It, it didn't it, it, less popular than the first, sure, but like that much very, less popular. Yeah, than the that, first. that was yeah. weird. That was very weird. I really thought that that was going to be a little bit more popular than it was. Mm-hmm. 
We still uh, haven't got that third film they teased, too. Damn it. No, I, and I don't think we ever will. I think we're done. Yeah, probably uh, not. Uh, here's number eight, uh, Homefront the Revolution from 2016 by Deep Silver Dam Buster Studios. I can't rank mm. this one too high because it's held together with duct tape and it barely works. But that being said, this is the only video game I've encountered that portrays the resistance movement scenario that gets the feel just right. Uh, have you played okay. Homefront? I've heard of Homefront, but no, I never played Homefront. Uh, okay. I, can't, uh, I can't speak so, to yeah, that. I can't, can't really con- comment on that yeah. one. Uh, okay. Number seven, Half Bad... The Bastard Song and the Devil Himself from 2022 by Joe Barton. It's a, a show. This show, uh, that sadly only lasted one season, has some of the most beautiful gore shots I have ever seen while still having a very compelling cast of characters and a rock-solid urban fantasy story to it. Ooh, I want to see this. Yeah. Half bad. Let me look this up. Hold on. You guys hear my typing here. You get to hear all my ambient noises today. Half bad. Um. The Bastard Song. Yeah, here we go. It was released in 2022. The Bastard Son and the Devil Himself. Oh, it's a Netflix um, show. You can just watch it. Yeah. On, and they just, uh, they, they just didn't bother to tell us about it, I guess. Well, just it's like everything on Netflix. Yeah, they, they, can, have, <laughs> yeah, they can have the best thing in the world. The they won't say anything about it. Yeah, yeah it only, only lasted eight episodes. That's too bad. Okay, well, sounds uh, you know good. what? It, easy to get through if it's only eight episodes. True. Uh, number six, High and Low the Movie from 2016, directed by Shigeaki Kubo. Uh, no, this has ah. nothing to do with the Kurosawa film. Rather, this is what happens when you let a Japanese boy band make a gangland drama and give them as many extras for the fight scenes as they could ask for. It's absolutely overwrought and insane, but man, do I love it. Oh, that sounds uh, like something Sion Sono might have done. That uh, sounds awesome, and yeah, I want to see that. I want to see that one. High and Low the Movie. Yeah. Uh, number five. Happiness is an inside job from 2022 by Royal and the Serpent. Uh, this is an insanely catchy and abrasive rock EP about depression, mm. dealing with it by day and working towards being better. Royal and the Serpent is one of the best out there when dealing with this exact subject matter. I'm not familiar mm. with Royal and the Serpent. I, I love these letters because I'm always learning about these new stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, number four, Hell Dogs and the House of Bamboo from 2022, directed by Masato Harada. Uh, some of this may be recency bias, but the Yakuza drama has some great pathos and watching its very broken leads try to interact with the world in a way other than violence. Ended up in my top five films of last year. Wow. I don't know. Don't know that one. Here, that here's what I've fell, heard of, Also fell the radar. Okay, uh, what do we got? Uh, number three, Hannah from 2011, directed by Joe hey! Wright. This is a film I've seen. Uh, this is one of my favorite films of all time. Between the nuts action directing and the budding queerness, this is laser targeted at all my buttons. Uh, yeah, Hannah's pretty terrific. Joe Wright, I, I don't always like his movies, mm-hmm. but they're always interesting to look at. There's something, I, something weird going on in each one of those things. I firmly believe that like, if I were in charge of the James Bond franchise, Joe Wright is someone I would try to get to direct one. Because I, I, I direct them all. That'd be uh, great. Well, I, I do want to spread the wealth at some point, but why? I honestly, I, I, maybe he'll stink at it. Sometimes he thinks someone will be amazing, and they oh, and they're true. not. But like Joe Wright, his films are like really hit or miss with me. And to be frank, I've never seen Anna, but he's always got a lot of visual panache. He 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 just really jumps into every piece of material that he's got and tries mm-hmm. to produce the ultimate version of that thing. Yeah, and I think yeah. that's what you want for that kind of movie where you kind of just cycle through directors and just say, "Hey, just come in and have fun for a movie." Yeah, and I would just, yeah. I think Joe Wright would probably knock that out of the park. Uh, I haven't seen Hannah. It's weird because I actually really love action movies. I was thinking about this the other day and how I don't really talk about how much I love action movies, but 
Mm. I do. And that's a weird like hole in my action movie experience because I know a lot of people who love it. So I'm going to try to see that this year. I just keep forgetting to. Yeah, I've I've actually seen all of Joe Wright's movies except for the soloist. The one with Jamie oh, Foxx. I, I forgot he did that. Yeah, he he did the so that yeah. was the one he did after Atonement, and that was the one I missed. Yeah. But uh, yeah, but yeah, then he did Hannah, which was kind of because he did Pride and Prejudice, and then he did Atonement, and then he did so he's doing like these big sort of studio style dramas, and then he did something like Hannah, which was really strange, and I think I think the Dust Brothers did the music. It was like really wild experimental music, and then he kind of fell back into his comfort zone and did a not very good version of Anna Karenina. Uh, we all know how badly Pan tanked, but I actually kind of like Pan. Ah, uh, uh, you're wrong about that. You're no, I'm, I'm, that. I'm, I'm, that's, that's I'm right. Movie. No, am, am you I, know, I Joe Wright no, no, is it's, right. It's, it's everybody else who's wrong. Uh, you're, okay. And and then he did like uh, he did the Darkest Hour, and then he's that terrible spy uh, or not spy uh, like p- airport novel pot boiler. Um, with oh, Amy Adams, what was that one? Oh, called? it was the woman, the woman in the window, the girl in the window, well, something like that. Girl, yeah, girl uh, on the train, oh, one God. of those. Yeah, that um, th- that movie isn't overwrought enough. <laughs> like it, 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 it needs it to be. A lot it needs more, to be yeah. a lot, a lot sleazier. It needs to be like that movie needs to to like star Shelley Winters in 1969. Oh God, that would have been great. That would have been so much more on the ball. Like just, yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, anyway, back to our list here. We, we, yes. We've talked about Joe Wright enough. Yeah. And he did Cyrano, and I—that's I, another one Cyrano's that everybody, pretty good. everybody I, hated. I, but I, I kind of like Cyrano. I, I, I know uh, a lot of people who love that movie. I think Cyrano's okay. It's all right. not amazing, but I like mm-hmm. it. Uh, number two, uh, House of X slash The Power of X from 2019 by Jonathan Hickman. This pair of interconnected oh, yeah. comic books, which are packaged together when not in single issues, and that's why I'm putting them together here, redefined the X-Men and brought about a new era in the comics in a way that both foundationally challenges the baseline premise of the series while still respecting the entire history of the group. It's a miracle that it works at all, let alone being the best comic book of the year. Um, uh, yeah, I, f- I fell away from X-Men comics. Do you know about House of X? I know oh, about uh, House of uh, M. Yeah, no, no, no. I... Uh... I really have fallen way out of Marvel Comics. And every okay. time I hear about what's happening with the X-Men in particular, uh, my eyes start to glaze over because it's really freaking weird. The only <laughs> thing I know for sure about the X-Men stuff going on in the comics right now, or at least relatively recently, hmm. that I genuinely hope makes it into the movies when they reboot them again for the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe. Uh, they have a new event called the Hellfire Gala, which is basically the Met Gala, but with X-Men. And all the X-Men and the villains, they wear, like, really wild and audacious, like, artsy versions of their costumes. We were talking about how the superhero yeah. costumes are, like, a fetish. Yeah, no, seriously, like, just look up, like, the Hellfire Gala costumes that, like, various characters wore in the Hellfire Gala. Uh, they are delightful, <laughs> and there's so much fun, and I am so, it, it just makes you remember, like, hey, remember when the costumes were just, could be wild and fun? Like, yeah, there's sometimes they were bad, but I don't know, I, I, I miss when they got really weird like this. So, like, I just love the idea, I love the idea that in a superhero universe... 
superhero costumes could be high fashion. Yeah. And would be treated yeah. as such and would have an influence on what was popular. People would probably want to wear, if not costumes, then clothes that probably evoke that because that's what the cool people are wearing. That's what Captain America <laughs> wears. That's what Spider-Man wears. I want to wear something that looks like that. They would be whole fashion lines that were superhero inspired or trying to push that aesthetic as far as it could go. And I'm like, I want that. That's such a great idea. Whoever came up with that, give them more money. Uh, and finally the number one on this list is uh, Hitman World of Assassination from 2016 to the present by IO Interactive Uh, Ah. Hitman has always been an amazing series of brilliantly crafted sandboxes where the goal is to kill a specific person and the World of Assassination trilogy which has since been brought together into a single game called Hitman World of Assassination that is taken to an honestly insane extreme without losing any of the fun that makes this series so beloved there's nothing else quite like this game out there uh hope you guys enjoy this list sincerely lexa this has been one of the more oblique lists you've sent us lexa um <laughs> is it oblique like, or, or are we just in our 40s uh, por que no los dos uh <laughs> it could be both of those things no, yeah, it, it is. It is oblique, and also we are old and out of touch. Um, well, that's also, it, also yeah. we're, we're we're film critics. That's where our attention True. lies. Um, True. We've both kind it's of easy for things to, to fly not, under our radar if they're in different yeah, art. Not playing you know, art like forms. a lot of video games or delving into you know modern day comic books. I, I haven't read a comic book in a long time. Uh, not because I I'm loath loathed of the medium or anything. I just don't have a lot of time. And if I'm going to read, I'm yeah. going to be reading the books I want to read. You, uh, you, you have to pick your battles and that's where yeah, we're at. Yeah. We don't have time to just, just absorb everything like a sponge the way we did when we were younger and had more free time and maybe more disposable income. Um, but that, that's what I love about this. This is why it's something that I think that's real dangerous for a critic, any art critic uh, mm. to feel like you, just because you've been studying something for a long time, to feel like you know more than anybody, you don't. You just you've seen a lot, you've experienced just, a lot, you've studied a lot. You're coming at the world from a different angle. That's all. Right, but like the 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 art that people who are in a different generation from us, about uh, older or younger, uh-huh. they're going to absorb more of it contemporaneously, especially when they're younger than we are. And we are going to not casually find this stuff. And if you're young and you're like, I don't know what that's like, it'll happen to you. You'll hit your 30s or your 40s, and all of a sudden mm. you'll talk to someone who's a teenager in their early 20s, and they're into music, art, books, comics, whatever, holograms, whatever the hell. They'll Whatever they're into, you're going to be like, I haven't heard of that. That sounds amazing, or that sounds like way too outre for me. And then you'll realize you, you, you just got generationed. You know, you just got, yeah. you just kind of, you, you, you got lapped by popular culture a little bit. Yeah, well, but um, the cool thing is you don't have to do the old person thing where you just don't explore it. You can also explore it. You can also, like, make sure you actually, like, do dip into things and try to stay. You'll never be entirely in well, step here, with whatever's popular, but you can, yeah. it, I think it behooves us to not tune it out either and go, oh, that sounds new and frightening. I don't want to watch that anime. Like, no, read that interactive novel. Do whatever. Well, you know, keep keep an open mind, but it's also... uh, And I I wish I could find the study where it said uh, that age 33 is sort of the average age when you you let go, when you stop paying attention to popular music, when uh, mainstream movies have less of an, an, an appeal than 
the films that you've or the music that you've already kind of decided you're into and you start going sure. back at that point and delving into music history. So that's actually an exciting time as well. Are you up on all the no- new stuff? No, but you're learning a lot about where all that stuff came from. Now you're finally going back a little bit. And I think you know, like 33 starts to be a really uh, exciting age. Uh, I don't disagree you, with that. I just hip? think it can you're... be exciting to see the new stuff too. It can be exciting to see the new stuff, but if you hear something and you don't like it, you don't have to force yourself. And if you're already, you know, going into like the back catalog of Thelonious Monk because that's what you what's giving you your, your jollies, then by the by all means, you know, do that. Do that instead. Um, you can explore in both directions. Don't okay. be closed minded about popular culture, but I think it's also okay to say, I'm an old man. I don't need to collect the new Halsey record. You know, that's. I, I have nothing against Halsey. Halsey's wonderful. Okay. I don't own any Halsey about records. To say. Okay. Um, uh, it, it, and it, I think it also, and I've noticed this happening, like a new trend will start up in music. And, and you know, this is speaking as a man who is 44 years old. Uh, a new trend will start in music, and it will sound a little bit off to my ears that have now listened to several trends rise and fall. Mm-hmm. And I'll acknowledge it. I might not like it. I might like it, but I'll acknowledge it. And I'll keep on hearing that sound. And my opinion will remain the same. This is the sound. This is what everybody sounds like right now. Uh, right now, a lot of the pop popular music is very moody and it's very dreamy. And a lot of the vocals are, there's a lot of vocal fry. That kind of stuff. Uh, to me, that's what all popular music sounds like. It's going to take a couple of years and that trend to fall out of the public eye mm. for an old guy like me to start to discern the difference when it's not part of this gigantic mass monoculture where everything kind of has a similar sound when the survivors start to flip to the surface, essentially. And uh, you can see what lived out and then you can actually have a... a pretty good grasp as to what some of the better and worse artists were from like a decade prior. You're not up on the new stuff, but you actually do have an appreciation for the way popular culture has been evolving over time. Um, That's how it's like, that's what it's like to be old. (laughs) All right, let's move on. (laughs) All right. Uh, Here is a letter from, okay. We have a get letters from okay. Occasionally. Hi, Okay. Um, Dear Bibbs and Whitney Seibold, you you are both smart. Uh, you're both still smart, beautiful, and entertaining. Listening to your podcasts all the time. Thank you. Uh, in your latest episode of Critically Acclaimed, you discussed different adaptations of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Mm. Uh, you spoke of the only version I'm familiar with, the Disney animated film. The one big flaw that you didn't address, which I understand the focus was on the new adaptation, was the racism in the movie. And I'm talking about its depiction of Romani people. Yeah. Uh, Disney's Hunchback of Notre Dame is, of course, partly about prejudice and portraying persecution of Romani isn't the problem. The problem is that the film keeps referring to them with the G slur. The slur, in case you don't know, yeah. comes from an old false belief that Romani hailed from Egypt. Uh, so uh, they also uh, they are also exoticized and in the case of Esmeralda portrayed uh, stere- stereotypically as thieves. Uh, I don't. I don't see this coming up very often in American or any podcasts and films and shows I follow. In general, racism against Romani is missing from the conversation very often. For example, the other day on Tumblr, I saw pretty much no pushback against Marvel Studios whitewashing traditionally Romani characters of the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. Uh, I know the U.S. has less Romani people than Europe, 
uh, where they are the group that faced the most discrimination, according to my understanding. But still, with raising awareness of social issues, you'd think people would talk about this more. Anyway, have you noticed any talk of the matter in your film circles, or do you know any positive depictions of Romani people in media? In other words, I started uh, another news. I started a second movie club. There I show movies that are previously unknown to me. In first period, I've shown 2001 A Space Odyssey. And we'll show three colors, blue and some like it hot. My first group is still going strong, and I'm still in the period where I've shown the 40-year-old version, Sammy Blood, turning red, and I'll be showing Nomad Lad and Hatching. Uh, with love and respect, okay. That's a good collection of films there at the end. Sounds um, um So to answer you, first off, yeah. about The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and we didn't bring it up recently, I, I don't think either of us have watched that movie very recently. I, I, uh, so I saw it was it fresh it, in my head. Yeah, I saw it when it came out, but that was you know, 20 years ago. So it's, it's been a hot minute. I've seen it since, but only like once. And you are absolutely correct. It, it absolutely falls into a lot of very unfortunate uh, uh, racist tropes, or yeah. at the very least, um, cliches. Uh, although you can make an argument that that's six of one, half a dozen of the other. Um, mm. And it's one of the things that really does think about it. It's kind of also in the source material, uh, but... Yeah, it's it's not great. And sadly, there's been a lot of movement, a lot of effort made to uh, improve the dialogue we're all having about uh, representation and positive representation and trying to do away with so much of the racism on which, uh, frankly, lazy hack or just racist storytellers yeah, uh, yeah. have have relied on in the past yeah, um, and, and i my my big fear about the a lot of those like racist tropes that just continue to persist mm-hmm. um is based just as much on lazy screenwriting as it is uh just sort of cultural bias where yeah. uh you know, these, these biases will start, these stereotypes will begin, they'll work their way into literature, and uh, screenwriters and storytellers will just sort of see, start to see a lot of these racist types as mere character types and yeah. adopt them as if they're just a natural part of the storytelling fabric without ever interrogating their racist origins. So a lot, yeah. of, these thing, a lot of these things persist in popular entertainment when a lot of mainstream audiences might not even know that they're supposed to be racist tropes. They're just sort of accepted as a, a character type. And this I think also... that, that might have been something that happened with something like Hunchback. Uh, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, this is how the Romani people look and behave, right? That's how they've always have in movies. So they just mm-hmm. throw it up on the screen without even thinking about it. And that's, and that's totally a thing. It's also something mm-hmm. we need to be very careful of when we um, use sci-fi and fantasy allegory for real-life people. Because oftentimes what will happen is we allow racist or unpleasant uh, caricatures of real-life people to stay alive, even when in a serious drama they would never hold water. Everyone would agree they were terrible. But because an alien is acting like that in the Star War, a lot of people are very eager to look the other way. Mm. And that's basically just doing everything we can to try to keep a racist, lazy storytelling uh, trope or character type alive instead of coming up with a new, more positive yeah, uh, or, yeah. or, or new interesting thing to do. Uh, so I've seen actual attempts being made to portray Romani people more fairly. 
Uh-huh. Uh, I appreciate what Mystery Science Theater 3000 did in renaming one of its characters. They said they didn't mean for it to be uh, a, a racist term, so they renamed the character. That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I'll be perfectly frank, and I would love it if we could get some letters on this. Especially yeah, from people yeah. who are uh, uh, Romani or have friends or family who are Romani. Uh, do you know of any movies that treat Romani people fairly? That yeah. don't rely on some of the lazier tropes? We're not like, there's so many movies, everything, even classic movies like The Wolfman, where it tends to be just, ah, the Romani uh, people, well, they're, they're just cursing everybody. Everyone's got a curse. Stephen yeah, King's like, done stories about that that got turned into movies. Uh-huh. Uh, it's it's a cliche. It's not very flattering. It's obviously insulting. Yeah, they even um, made fun yeah. of it in Mystery Men. the 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 whole oh, yeah. the whole curse thing because that's what happened to the spleen. Oh yeah yeah yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. you're right. It, again, it's something that I don't think people really think of. Yeah, and, uh, and, and I think I think they're just so used to just yeah, they're, they're so used to this casual racism. Mm-hmm. That we we it took us way too long to interrogate it, yeah, and, and, and that's embarrassing. It's it's and it's really bad. And I'm 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 old enough to rem, to sort of see a, a sort of a cycle in at work. Like a, a certain uh, group or nationality will be depicted in film uh, just completely horrendously mm-hmm. in like really racist or sexist or homophobic or transphobic ways, and those are like the hot comedic commodities at the time. So all of these really racist uh, stereotypes will persist for about a, like about a decade. Uh, Like try to think of the way uh, Asian people were depicted in certain eighties comedies in America. Or or even the seventies in Disney movies, like uh, our dinosaur is missing or something. Yeah. 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 Where there's just these broad stereotypes and it, it took a far too fucking long but eventually those stereotypes fell out of fashion. Uh, many, many people are saying, hey, these these are bad. Let's not have them in movies anymore. And they stopped putting them in movies. And it's just a hop, skip, and a jump for the screenwriters to just target another group. And this is they, what I'm they talking they about. They yeah, just, they, you want to keep, because you don't want to come up with a whole new way to tell a story. You want to just say, mm-hmm. okay, what other group of people can we, quote unquote, safely make fun of yeah, yeah. Without uh, and just and just be merciless to. I remember, uh, uh, and it's a it's really fucked ads. up. We just got to move past that. It's yeah, not fun. I remember a series of commercials um, for uh, it was for Metro PCS, uh, and there's the uh, mascots, like the pitch people, the the mm. the characters in their commercials were also these broad stereotypes, but it was of Indian people. So, and I remember seeing that kind of Indian stereotype in a lot of media for a long, long time. And those needed to be interrogated after a while. I didn't see the documentary film, um, I think it was called Living with Apu, which is about um, the character of Apu on The Simpsons and how he was this very broad stereotype. And however much they tried to humanize the character in the show, he still remained a pretty broad stereotype. And... uh, and he's also played by uh, by Hank Azaria, who is not an Indian actor. So yeah. that that was a bit of an issue. Um, yeah. So yeah, a, a lot of those were were really being interrogated. But yeah, there's still all of these racist tropes that are still persisting, and yeah. we've been trying to move away from them all the time. And all screenwriters can do 
partly through cultural ignorance, but I think largely through complete laziness, is to just find a group that they can have be a cheap comedic shot uh, rather than actually do the hard work and create a comedic character. Yeah, it's it all really comes. Down, a lot of it just comes down to bad screenwriting. And, and, and honestly, and listen, and by the way, for the record, we are 100% in support of the WGA strike right now. Oh, hell yeah. They're great, they're great writers. But even, whether you're a great writer or just an okay writer or, or whatever, you deserve to be paid fairly for your work. We 100% support the WGA, but that doesn't mean shitty screenplays haven't been written. And we will call that out when it happens, especially when they're racist or some other form of just mm. thing that's not very supportable. So, um, but yes, so here's the deal. In regards to the question, can we recommend some films that uh, portray the Romani people uh, more fairly, you know, more in, in a more positive light? Um, I am not an expert in that. I've sadly seen way more films treat them in a racist way. Yeah, uh, if yeah. anyone knows, especially if you are... Romani, or you know people who are, your family who are, and you would so you would know something of what you're talking about. If you have any movies you can recommend, that might be an antidote to this, uh, you know, unfortunate wave of mm-hmm. racism that have been permeating through this depiction of an entire culture in the media for as long as I can remember. Um, yeah. I would love to hear it, and we would love to give you uh, uh, some time on the We've Got Mail uh, to share some positivity and give some people some uh, better examples in the media of this representation. So once again, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net, and our P.O. Box is... Uh, yes, uh, P.O. Box uh, 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I think we're going to cut it off there today. Uh, but, uh, thank you everybody oh, for okay. writing in. I guess that, that's uh, it for us. It's All about right. an hour. Mm-hmm. It's about an hour. We're good. Uh, thank you for writing in. Thank you for joining us. Um, huge thank you to all of our patrons without whom we would have no shows. Yeah. And, um, yeah, we just, we just gave our email address and uh, PO box. We're on yep. Twitter at critic acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, Whitney, any, any, anything you want to take us out on? Any last thoughts? Uh, I love you all, and you're all wonderful. Aw. Well, sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. 